Good morning. I am not 62. Mike, Mike was like, are you actually 62? No, I'm not 62. I'm just going to pray as we start. Lord Jesus, thank you. <clears throat> thank you that we get to join together as family and hear from your word and be sharpened and encouraged. And Lord, would your spirit fill this place as we hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I used to be addicted to pornography. Addic addiction is a self-diagnosis, but I was immersed. I was compulsive. I was harming myself and others. There was a moment in my life where the consequences of my sin had caught up with me. And I remember crying in my room loudly. I was desperate for purity. I was desperate to change. I was desperate for forgiveness. At the time, I was, I was living in College Park, and I was in an apartment that had paper-thin walls. And my neighbor heard me crying and compassionately pounded on the wall for me to shut up. <laughs> At that time in my life, I was going from valley to valley, failure to failure, under a cloud of guilt and discouragement. I remember at the time reading from Psalm 40, and it had a dramatic effect on me. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock. Making my steps secure, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I've not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness, of your salvation. I've not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. I read this verse imagining and longing for a day that I would give this testimony in church. The testimony of deliverance. Amen. You may think it's strange, but I would have happily traded the shame of sharing something like this publicly for the shame of my sin. And I sought it for years. But actually, I was missing something. I was looking at my deliverance too narrowly. I was looking at it through the lens of this one issue and whether I could be free from sinning in this one particular way. Jesus, this morning, wants to offer a different and better kind of freedom, a more complete and permanent freedom. Not just a freedom from failure, but a freedom from shame. Yes. Not just a freedom from sin, but a freedom to come to Him in our sin and to receive undeserved love. Yes. Amen. Shame at that time in my life was playing such a permanent role. But even as a Christian, I didn't understand how to be rid of it. We're in a moment where our culture is also trying to be rid of shame. 
Our culture says that God and religion will shame people into slavish submission and uniformity. That the actual way to buck against shame is to just reject the moral standard entirely. This was on full display at the Grammys where there was a song called Unholy performed by a singer dressed as Satan, surrounded by scantily clad transvestite dancers worshiping him on live primetime television. And CBS, knowing what was to come later, tweeted, we're ready to worship. The whole production was designed to move the goalpost on what people will feel shame about. All of us are trying to figure out what to do with feelings of shame. But are the only two paths available to us to follow our culture and totally abandon any standard at all, or to be destined to strive for an impossible standard and continually fall short? Are those really the only two options? No. Today, we'll look at a story where the Word of God offers a third way. Another path that rejects shame and leads to salvation and to more and more holiness and peace. Isn't that what we want? That's what the world is seeking too. And they're trying desperately to find it. This is what I was weeping and longing for in my room that day. This third path is modeled in the story of a sinful woman and Jesus. And ultimately, this third path is what freed me to be able to stand here today and share with you the great congregation of the faithfulness and the salvation of God. So what is this third path? Listen as I read from Luke 36, 7, sorry, 7, 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned he was reclining at table at the, in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, 
But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So what is this third way? Come boldly to Jesus for forgiveness. Jesus loves our faith to come before him to receive forgiveness. Come with extravagant praise. Jesus loves the praise and love of his forgiven children. I couldn't wait to share this punchline of my sermon with you, so you'll have to come with me as we go back and support this from these, these points from the, uh, from the text. First, let's look at the context around this dinner party and how the situation would have felt so we can place ourselves in this scene. So the context, this passage is loaded with social taboos, with painful awkwardness, embarrassment, nails on chalkboard, wince-inducing moments, shameful manners, shameful intrusion, shameful acts, shameful past. Think of how uncomfortable this moment would have been. This dinner party included Simon the Pharisee, a group of unnamed Pharisees, and Jesus. There was already tension in this meal because earlier that day, Jesus had confronted these same Pharisees to their face. Simon the Pharisee seemed to have, seemed to have begrudgingly invited Jesus to dinner following that exchange. He wanted to know more about this guy that was undermining their religious authority. We see indications of Simon's attitude towards Jesus when he neglects to extend any of the social courtesies at that time. He gave him no water for his feet. He gave him no kiss, and he didn't anoint him with oil. These would have been obvious omissions in the culture at the time, and it would have signaled real scorn from Simon towards Jesus. This was an inhospitable and cold atmosphere. Then, in barges, a notoriously sinful woman, likely a prostitute. Verse 37, it says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Imagine in your small group if a known prostitute comes in and asks for your small group leader. You would probably have questions. The woman in our story was not invited and had only the faintest reason to believe that she would be welcome. She had maybe heard Jesus say earlier that he was a friend of sinners. And while Jesus' label as a friend of sinners may have comfortingly applied to her, that's hardly an invitation to dinner. Was the prostitute here for Simon 
or one of the other Pharisees or for Jesus? A totally understandable response would have been to distance yourself from this woman. Simon and the other Pharisees did. Jesus did not. So we're going to look deeper at each of the characters in this story to understand how they approach shame because they model the paths that I described as I started this message. So the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious elite. They were the ones that held the line on the moral standards. They knew the standards of the Bible personally with absolute precision through years of study, vigorous memorization, and teaching. They kept the law with, with painful commitment down to the bone. They abstained. They worked. They prayed. They fasted. They ate. They rested all according to the law of Moses. From the perspective of the people and from their own perspective, they were rightly honored as holy and they set the standard to which everyone should aspire. Yet, they're also the ones most frequently at the blunt end of Jesus' condemnation. The most heated confrontation being in Matthew 23, where he totally dresses them down, calling them blind fools, blind guides, hypocrites, children of hell, whitewashed tombs, serpents, and brood of vipers. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 2-7, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. He's speaking directly to them. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their flatteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. The Pharisees tried to overcome shame by perfectly adopting the rules and receiving honor for their obedience. They were as close as you can come, humanly speaking, to keeping that moral standard. Yet, Jesus clearly demanded something more from them. And their version of holiness left them woefully short. Their thinking around obedience and honor also explains their reaction to this woman, who was nowhere near keeping the rules. If their version of maintaining the rules was deserving of honor, her particular brand of breaking them was deserving of shame. And they treated her with this contempt. In verse 39, it says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this woman, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. If you've been around the Bible and, and biblical teaching, you'll be familiar with Jesus as the antagonist and the Pharisees is the antagonist. That dynamic is present often in the Gospels. But the Bible doesn't tell us to look down our nose at these figures. It doesn't allow us to. It actually asks us to consider, are we like the Pharisees? 
I've heard it said that if you think you're above any sin, you must be stronger than Samson, wiser than Solomon, and more devoted than David. So don't dismiss the Pharisee too easily. Is there anyone in your life that you avoid? Anyone in our church you avoid because of their sin, their shame, and their failures? Do you think of yourself as deserving of honor or just better than someone else who's struggling in some serious way? The tragic outcome in the story of their way of thinking was that they totally misunderstood who Jesus was. In verse 49, it says, Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who is this who even forgives sins? They didn't get it. They asked in contempt. They asked without wanting an answer. Who is this, they asked. Surely he cannot forgive that person. Who is this that even forgives sins? Family, self-righteous judgment and a true understanding of Jesus cannot coexist. Let God search your heart for self-righteousness and repent where it is present. In this story, Jesus breaks the chain between outward obedience and honor. Our honor is only tethered to Jesus. And he gloriously slashes the relationship between sin and shame. Jesus takes both our sin and our shame. And he clothes us with steadfast love. So now let's look at the sinful woman who models the way that leads to salvation, honor, forgiveness, and freedom from shame. Like I said earlier, come to him boldly and seek his forgiveness. Come with extravagant praise. This woman had had many interactions with men before. Men who would take. Men who would use her and then despise her. Men who treated her like nothing more than a piece of meat to satisfy their hunger. Each new man making her more dependent on other men who would violate and deprive her. Making her less and less welcome in polite society, more and more shame from leering men or despised wives. She was notorious, a sinner. Life situation or life choices, we don't know which, set her on this one-way path to unbearable shame. And one day, when her beauty left, just to loneliness. Then this woman met Jesus. No lust in his eyes, no selfish desire, just someone who loved her in a way that she had never experienced love. The only thing he wanted to take away from her was her shame. The only thing he wanted from her was her faith. And what he offered her was acceptance and peace. Can you start to understand why she couldn't wait until after the party to come in? As I read this, I thought, 
Why couldn't she just wait an hour, an hour or two, for the party to end? She could have pulled Jesus aside and thanked him quietly. But no, she ran home to find her most precious treasure. This bottle of ointment, probably paid for with her sin, probably used to make her more appealing to ruthlessly selfish men, and she ran straight into the party. She wanted to give everything to him. She wanted to show her love in any way that she could, trying to be pure, but stumbling over herself, putting herself as low as she could in praise. She just wept. Tears of joy, tears of love. Tears of gratitude falling down her face onto Jesus' feet. As she wept, she kissed his feet. We don't know if it was her intent to wipe his feet with her hair, but it was just such extravagant praise. It seemed like the right thing to do. Then she poured her treasure the precious ointment from her jar onto his feet. While there are cultural gaps between ancient Israel and today that make it hard to fully understand what was happening here, what is clear is that a sinner is responding to Jesus' love with extravagant praise. What understandably could have been a moment of shame, her sin in the open, under the scorn of others, unkept, dirty, weeping, unwelcome, is such a moving moment of freedom from shame, repentance and love by this woman, and Jesus accepting, defending, honoring, and ultimately saving her. Come to him boldly. Thank you. Come to him boldly, seeking his forgiveness. Come to him with extravagant praise. Shame is such a powerful weapon of the enemy. I woke up this morning at 4 a.m. with a voice in my head saying, how can you preach this message? It's the second blow, shame is, that the enemy lands after tempting us to sin. First, he tells us that God is withholding something good from us. It's been his move since the beginning of time. He, seeks, he tells us to seek our own good outside of the gracious boundaries of what God has given. And then when we do, he says, how could you? Now, just, now look at you, you're just ridiculous. Saying you're a Christian and then doing that. No one else has the issues that you have. If we're being honest, you're just pathetic. At this point, you should just try to pick up the pieces of your life because Jesus is tired of doing that. Have you heard this version of shame before? When I was walking through addiction, I walked with low-grade shame for years. And I was a Christian. What was I missing? This woman models something for us. She models something amazing. 
She ran to Jesus in her shame. She didn't make excuses and try to find a better time to repent or to worship. She didn't say, these religious people will think worse of me if I show my weakness. Jesus knew the very worst about her. He doesn't ignore her sin. But he doesn't shame her for them. Her sins, which are many, he says, are forgiven. And as if to hammer at home, he says two more times, your sins are forgiven and your faith has saved you. Amen. Jesus actually honors this woman for her faith, love, and commends her for her clumsy praise and affection. Did you notice as I read that story that you're not grossed out by this woman? Did you notice that? The Bible does not make you despise this woman. Amen. The verse is written honoring her. You know her sin, but you don't concentrate on her sin. This verse is written honoring her. Her shame is just, is, was not just removed at that party. It was removed for all of history. For all of church history, she's used as an example to emulate. We have a sense of her life and of her many sins. But God takes away her shame. What kind of love is this? What kind of miraculous cleansing from shame? Do you hide your sin in shame? Think of a God that would intentionally include a story of someone that exposed her many sins and include it in the Bible to honor her. Jesus stands in her place and he says, do you see this woman? He saw her. He looked upon her with love and forgiveness while the others could only see the stain of her sin. The sinful woman understood something about Jesus that the enemy of our souls tries with all the intensity and power of hell to confuse and to obscure. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus' heart is drawn to our brokenness. Jesus looks at humanity and he came to us in our brokenness. He is gentle and lowly. He pursued us in our sin. Amazingly, our sin didn't drive him away. It caused him to come to earth as a man. It opens us up to the compassionate healing of the great physician. Come to him boldly and seek forgiveness. Come to him with extravagant praise. There's a bit of a lengthy story I'd like to read to you from the author, Joe Stowell. It says, what a contrast. Jesus loved and forgave the town prostitute. Simon, the good person in town, was repulsed by her presence. Lisa De Palma ministers to prostitutes in Chicago's west and north sides. Always used and never loved. They hear, some of them for the first time, that God has wonderfully loved them in Jesus Christ. Recently, I sat in a small gathering where Lisa was describing her work with these women. We sat stunned 
gripped by the awfulness of her stories and shattered throwaway lives. For most of us, prostitutes are some distant reality, a repulsive part of a dark underside of society. Few of us have ever thought about them, let alone of taking Jesus' love to them. My guess is that more often or not, more often than not, we think of prostitutes with Simon's kind of sanctimonious aloofness. The aloofness that often plagues our kind of Christianity. Are you concerned about other, what others will think about you if they really know you? Come to Jesus. He already knows you. Do you feel your shame is unbearable? Come to Jesus. He will take away your shame. Do you feel that this church will reject you if you brought the real you? Trust that Jesus, who sees and knows your many sins, will not recoil from a repentant heart and will stand in your defense, no matter how others respond. Do you recoil from people's sin? Come to Jesus and remember how he canceled your debt that you could never pay. Jesus puts a parable in this story to help, help the others understand his response to this woman. It's the parable of the moneylender. The moneylender was due money from debtors, both owing painfully large sums, one amounting to over $100,000, the other to over $10,000. Despite the smaller debt of the one, neither one could pay. The moneylender does the unthinkable and cancels the debt of both. There's no reason given. Nothing that the debtors contributed to the decision. It seems that their only contribution was their poor financial management. Imagine the relief. The weight of debt removed. No debtor's prison. And in one life-altering decision, the moneylender, at his own expense and from his own kindness, chose to forgive and cancel their debts. We learn about this moneylender that we all owe a debt to him, one that, no matter the size, is unpayable. The moneylender in this story is clearly understood to be Jesus, and the one with the great debt is clearly the sinful woman. Jesus isn't merely overlooking or forgetting her debt. It cost Jesus personally and significantly to forgive her. He canceled the debt that this woman had accrued. One over many years and many sins, he cancels the debt entirely and without payment from her. Though he did require something, repentance and faith. Your faith has saved you, he says. Do you ever wonder if this money lender is kind? Does this money lender hold your debts over you, even if forgiven, to leverage you? Does this money lender judge and condemn you? Look at Jesus in this story. The one from whom this woman has accrued a massive debt in her sin. Do you see anything but gentleness? and kindness, acceptance, and love. Go in peace, he says to her.
I started this message sharing my personal struggle with sin. I share this testimony today, and I share the deliverance of God this morning. The deliverance has not been to perfection. My deliverance has been breaking a cycle of shame that kept me in a miserable merry-go-round of sin, sin, failure, shame, sin, failure, shame. Praise God that I can share this morning that when shame gets removed from this equation, the sin becomes less and less. I learned that the path to freedom from shame is to come boldly to Jesus, claiming His forgiveness. Come to Him with extravagant praise. The amazement of God's love for me grows greater and greater. We will not lose the taste for sin until a far greater delight takes its place. I can gladly share before the great congregation today the faithfulness and salvation of God who has brought me out of a pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and has set my feet on the rock. I believe that God will uphold His promise from Psalm 40 that says, Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. My prayer today is that our church takes a step forward, not only representing the moral authority of Jesus to ourselves and to one another, but that we represent the unconditional love of Jesus to broken sinners like me, like the sinful woman in the story, like each of us who walks through this door on Sunday. I pray that Monument Church overflows with people that boldly repent and love extravagantly because they have been forgiven much. Amen. Amen.